0: Blog Talk Radio. Hi there. I'm Laura the C.S. Speech Language Pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk the podcast. Today, we're going to be continuing our series that I started, oh gosh, several shows ago, called "I Need a Plan." And this was reviewing the simple treatment hierarchy that we use any time we're looking at toddlers with any kind of speech language delay, whether it be just a case of late talking versus kids that you know there's more going on but you don't have a firm diagnosis yet versus kids who already have some kind of diagnosis, like autism, even something that's just a speech language a specific diagnosis like mixed receptive and expressive language delay. So we are looking at that hierarchy. And if you'll remember, the first piece was social interaction. So getting a kid connected to you, helping him be engaged, helping it look like he likes (laughs) other people, and that he enjoys playing with you and interacting with you because that's just the foundation. When kids don't do that, when they avoid, when they tune out, when they do everything they can to get away instead of moving near you, just not ready to learn language. So if you're working with a child like that, if you're a therapist or if you are parenting a toddler like that, the strategies that we're talking about in today's show, meaning how to get expressive language going, may not work yet because that child is just not developmentally ready. He hasn't gotten the first piece of the big communicative puzzle, which is getting that interaction consistently going so that, again, he's he understands that communicating takes two people and he is an active participant in that process that's the first piece the second piece was receptive language and that goes is closely linked with cognition so our little friends who have diagnoses like down syndrome sometimes kids with cerebral palsy and then a host of other other kinds of syndromes or other kind of neurological issues or even other other developmental problems will have cognitive delays. And any time a child has a cognitive delay, we know that his receptive language skills are going to be delayed too. And anytime there's a receptive language delay, we know that expressive language skills will be delayed too. So the receptive piece is what comes next. And the easiest way to measure a child's receptive language ability or his ability to uh, comprehend language is just to look at how he functions in everyday routines. Does he follow directions? Can you say to him things like, where's your ball? And him, go find his ball. Or can you say to her, if she has a favorite toy, can you name it and she'll go get it for you? Will the child point to body parts? Does he identify pictures? When you're looking at a book together and you can say, I see a dog. Where's that dog? And he points right to it. Those are all examples of receptive language. And, again, The strategies that we're talking about in today's show are not going to be effective for children who don't do that yet, who aren't there yet developmentally as far as understanding language goes. Children have to understand language before they can use language and don't let anybody else convince you differently. (laughs) There's another whole field that doesn't really pay attention to receptive language as much as. Uh, educators do and certainly speech-language pathologists, and so don't get fooled by that. You've got to have the receptive language piece or being able to understand and follow directions and recognize what words mean and link meaning with words before you're ever really able to use those words communicatively. Now, there are lots of children who talk but don't communicate, and the strategies that we're going to use and talk about today – won't really address those issues either for those kinds of kids. Those kids really need receptive language practice and and strategies that we talked about in the last show to help them really, really learn to demonstrate that they know what words mean. So if you're working with a child or if you're parenting a child that you're tuning into the show that you think, oh, she's going to tell me how to make him talk, but he's not following any directions, this is not the show for you back up and listen to the last show which was number 349. Now this show is number 350 and we are ready to talk about expressive language, but again I wanted to this is the third piece in our hierarchy, but I wanted to really review those developmental red flags because so many times especially parents miss those because we we look at he's not talking and we start there. And as we've we've already discussed already in this little what couple of minutes since we've been on, It doesn't begin there with late talking. It actually backs all the way up to the social piece and then the cognitive, receptive language piece. And then when a child is following directions and understanding words and we have a good idea that his comprehension skills are moving along, then we're ready to try the things that we're going to be talking about today. Let me say one more thing. Another big indicator that a kid is ready to work on expressive language skills from a developmental perspective is that he or she is playing with a, a wide variety of toys. So when we have children who aren't playing with toys, and again, let's let's not confuse and let's let's not muddy the water here. A lot of times, parents will say, "Well, he just doesn't like toys. He's just not that interested in toys." Guys, that is never really the problem. When toddlers and preschoolers aren't playing with toys, please don't kid yourself and pretend like, "Oh, they just have more advanced inter- more advanced interest." You know, he only wants to do games on the iPad. He only wants to watch movies. It's because he doesn't know how to play. And when kids don't know how to play, we know that there are missing skills all, nearly always cognitively, meaning just they haven't learned how to play with a toy yet. They need a lot of direct teaching to make that happen. There could be motor skill problems, meaning that there's some muscle tone issues. And again, those are usually children who have a diagnosis, like cerebral palsy or Down syndrome or another, another syndrome. There's a medical condition involved you'll recognize the poor motor coordination because they're late crawlers, late walkers. And again, that motor piece should not be a surprise, but that's the reason they're not playing with toys. They can't just, their little bodies don't, don't move and they can't, as, as we would expect them to, because of those muscular differences or neurological differences. And because there's, again, that, that cognitive piece is delayed, so we're going to have to teach play like we teach everything else and really teach them how to play with toys, and so that's another big marker too. But if you're listening, and if the child that you're concerned about, either your own child or a whole little bunch of friends on your caseload, if you're a therapist, If kids are doing all those things, they're socially connected, they play with you, they like being with you, they smile at you, they're listening to you, they're following directions, they're playing with a lot of toys, then they are ready for these strategies. So let's get going with my best strategies for helping toddlers with language um, delays make that leap and and get those words going. Now, the first thing that we want to look at really is how a kid imitates. And there are actually eight levels of imitation, and I teach these levels in my course steps to building verbal imitation skills in toddlers, or in my therapy manual, building verbal imitation skills in toddlers. So if you're interested in those things and and want the expanded step-by-step version of how this imitation hierarchy looks or how this expressive language treatment approach looks, you can get that information either with CEUs, for those of you who are therapists and need that for your licensure or your credentialing. And then, for uh, parents or for therapists who, again, want the written version, you do better visually with material, and you want handouts to share with parents, the manual is excellent and really walks through these eight levels but what we do with kids here is that we just start at the beginning with expressive language and that's always with imitation imitation is how we learn every single thing now as we get older you might not see someone do something you're trying to do although with the invention of youtube i think gosh you know i can sit and read these directions for something that's pretty complicated or I can see if there's a YouTube video about it and get somebody to show me how to do it. And so, again, it's still a visual learning thing, but you actually, you are imitating at that point because you're watching someone do it. And my point here is, until we are older, this is how we learn everything. So a child has to be able to see somebody do it, watch somebody do it, and then he does it too. And the same holds true with talking. They're hearing you say a word, and then they try to repeat it. You can't always start, though, at that, Imitation level at the single word level because that's the problem when a kid is a late talker. A parent has certainly tried that already. They have been in their own child's faces saying, Say mama, say dada, say please, say milk. I mean, they have tried and tried and tried and tried and tried. And so rarely as therapists will we get a child when it's that easy. And sometimes it happens, and when it does, boy, I always feel like this is a gift from above that I have a kid who will imitate single words in his very first session, and, ooh, you know, the the stars have aligned when that happens, because that rarely is the case, that you get a kid who qualifies for a state early intervention program, or even if you're in private practice, or certainly a school-based program, that it's as easy as that. We model the word, and then they imitate. We nearly always have to backtrack and see exactly where skills, uh, kids' imitative skills are breaking down. And so for different kids, it will be at different levels. But for most kids, you're going to need to go back to the beginning and kind of look at this very, very sequentially and figure out where is he not imitating? Is this all the way back at the actions with objects phase? And that usually comes in with toddlers by, I mean, a lot of times, these skills or most of these skills are coming in right at the 12-month level, right before those first birthdays. Kids are really, really beginning to imitate lots of things that they see their parents do. And actually, as toddlers move from that first birthday to a year and a half to that 18-month period, imitating something that they see their parents do, like a household activity, is one of their favorite things to do. And so if mom is... Dusting, or washing off a table, or washing um, the the windows, or the sliding glass door, or whatever they want to do it too. They're trying to get a paper towel or a rag and go behind you and do that. When a little boy sees his daddy cutting the grass, you know he wants to be out there and pretend like he's pushing the lawnmower too. When they see you wash dishes, they do everything they can to climb up. They want to wash the dishes too, and so that's just naturally ingrained. That's one of our best avenues of learning, and again, when we don't see that sort of thing, what do we have to do? We have to teach it, and so imitating actions with objects is the very first step here. Now, let me just say, if you are working with a child who has, who will sit down and play with you with a new toy and who has pretty good play skills, he's already mastered this level, so you know, oh, you know, go Matt, we can move on. So but but for kids who don't have good play skills, this looking at imitation in this way will also help establish some early play skills. And so you back up to see if will this kid copy what I do with a toy. And so start with the expected actions. So with something like a toy truck, what would you expect a child to do with a toy truck? Push it across the floor, roll it, do something. That indicates that he understands that that toy has wheels and it's supposed to move, and so something like a hat, you would expect the child to do what with that? I hope you're I hope you're answering this out loud. <laughs> I hope you're somewhere where you can really feel like you're participating with me. That I'm imagining that some of you are doing that. Uh, but put a. we would want him to put the hat on his head. What would a kid do if you're playing with a toy piano? You peck at the piano, you want him to do that too. Now some of these things he would naturally do on his own, and that's fantastic, and we certainly want that, but here we really are looking for imitation. Can he copy you? Can he watch you and then do what you do? Because that's... That's how we lead to talking, with him hearing you say a word and then repeating it, too. But that's the first step. The next little piece in this is, will a kid imitate actions or body movements that he sees you do? So this would be like, you clap and a child claps, or you raise your arms in the air and he does that, too. This leads to imitating gestures So early gestures that send messages, so they're communicative or communicative, however you like to say that word or pronounce that word. So things like waving bye-bye, things like pointing to let you know what he wants, uh, things like shaking his head no when he doesn't want something. He can't say the word yet, and he might have already used the gesture like, putting his hands out like he's stopping you or turning his head like he's stopping you. But the next little rung up that becomes a gesture that's just easily recognized by almost anyone would be shaking his head no or shaking his head yes in affirmation. Yes, I want that. Yes, give that to me. So those little simple early gestures, that comes next. And again, in typical language development, these things are happening right around that First birthday and children again, just like we talked about with actions with objects and imitating things and, and routines that they that ch- that children watch you do as you go about your everyday activities at home, and that's a favorite skill of toddlers. Gesture use strengthens during this same period, so kids learn to do lots and lots and lots of different gestures. Dr. Amy Weatherby has a wonderful website and a wonderful. Um, Way of thinking about gestures and talking about how important gestures are to language development. And she says children should have 16 different gestures by 16 months. So as therapists, that's a really good milestone for you to ask parents. So even if you're evaluating an 18-month-old, a 24-month-old, a 30-month-old, you want to see how many gestures they're using. And if it's only just a handful, one or two or five, for a two-year-old, you know, gosh, that's, that's where this expressive problem really, really begins. So this is the level where he's not yet successful. And then you kind of think to yourself, well, no wonder he's not talking because he doesn't have the basics yet. He hasn't mastered those foundational pieces yet. So this is the level that you would think, hmm, here's the breakdown. Let me also say that lots of us, when we're looking at expressive language strategies and we're trying to get expressive language going, many times therapists will want to introduce sign language as a way to jumpstart a child's progress. Now, I love signing. I've signed with kids since, you know, I went to school in the 80s and early 90s, and it's a fantastic strategy. But when a kid is not using any kind of gestures and won't copy any kind of body movements, he's not developmentally ready to use sign language. And so, again, here's your breakdown. Here's where you know, oh, this is, this is, uh this little system for language learning is disrupted all the way back to that earliest level where he becomes symbolic and he learns that waving my hand in response to my mom waving her hand means by somebody's leaving. That's the message that a child is communicating with that. And, again, it always begins imitatively. It doesn't mean anything really the first time or two that a child does it. He has to do the motor action and then associate that meaning or associate the meaning really as he sees mom wave and wave and wave and wave and, you know, grandmother and daddy and everyone else wave at him for weeks or months until he tries to do it too. And so he does understand it first, but a lot of times kids, again, they're linking that meaning kind of simultaneously with that, uh, especially with gesture use. And so But think about gestures in that way, how important that is, and think about as therapists or as parents, you know, parents will hear baby signs. You know, those, again, have been around since the 90s, and it's so well known for children to, and for adults to introduce signs like more and please and all those little generic ones, which are absolutely fine, by the way, for jump-starting language and getting those things going. But just know that when a kid can't, clap with you or won't imitate banging his hands on a table after you've done that or any kind of little motor movement that you're doing, he is not a great candidate for sign language yet because he doesn't get that imitative piece. So you'll have to teach him those earlier things to do first before you're going to move on and really, really work with him with teaching signs to use signs communicatively and functionally. Um, And so... Be sure, especially as a as a therapist, that you're explaining that to parents and so they understand. And especially if a parent has not had any therapy yet and they say, gosh, science just didn't work with my child, you'll really, really be able to explain that and, and talk about why they're not working yet, that, oh, you know, first we need to teach them how to imitate some of these earlier body movements, and let's see how he does with that. And that would be our starting point with this. Some kids just don't have communicative intent yet, and that's when they're not socially connected. Like we just talked about in that introduction of these strategies, that that would be a red flag where kids don't know I can tell another person something. And, again, they're not using words yet, but they can do it with their – Eye contact. They can do it with their facial expressions. They can do a little body movement and let a parent know what they mean. If you're not seeing any of those early uh, communicative intent uh, actions, you know that a kid—that's what's missing. He's not socially connected enough, and that's what we talked about at the very beginning. And and sometimes kids don't imitate body movements and gestures, again, because that that cognitive piece or that receptive language piece is missing. They're not symbolic. So like we talked about with waving bye-bye, they don't get that 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 actual waving of their hand means something. And so you'll have to work on those pieces, and that's why, why they're not talking yet, and then all the way back to why they're not signing yet and why they're not using gestures yet. And so as a parent, I hope that explanation has helped you understand why your own child may not be talking yet and that talking is not really the problem. (laughs) It goes all the way back to this imitating piece or whether it might be receptive language or whatever or social connection that there are these other red flags that are missing. But again, when a kid doesn't have those really basic skills, he's just not ready to talk yet, and that's why it's been so hard. And we do have to meet him where he is and figure out, like I've already said, where this breakdown occurs. All right, so that was the second thing that we're going to teach there, teaching a kid how to imitate actions and imitate body movements. And sign language, you know, everything is so cyclical, and that has fallen out of favor, uh, especially, especially there's not much research to support that children with autism will do well with signs either. Now, as a therapist... You may be sitting there just adamantly disagreeing with me because you have taught lots of children with autism or who go on to be diagnosed with autism. You've taught them to sign and just know, so have I. (laughs) But the research is pretty clear that as a whole, children with autism struggle with signing because of that social interaction deficit. They don't have a lot of social referencing, meaning they don't watch other people. That's not as internally motivating to them as it is for other kinds of children, either typically developing children or children who have a language delay and don't have any of the social concerns. So when a child does get an autism diagnosis, one of his core deficits is he's just not as connected to other people. He doesn't make as much eye contact. He's not as interested in watching other people. Again, that social connection for him is just different. And so that's the reason he's not signing. He's not watching as closely as other children. And that that makes so much sense to me, and it's made so much sense to so many parents that I've explained that to over the years. So that's a way to really think about that. And when a parent is saying, I've already tried signing, or let's say that you're a therapist and you've been working with a kid that you know has red flags for autism for weeks now or months now, and you have been trying and trying and trying to get him to sign, you may have to go back next week and say to a mom in your next appointment, hey, (laughs) we're not going to do that anymore, and here's why. You know, I've put this together, that his social skill issues are just really, really one of the reasons that he's not being able to sign with us right now. Or it could be a motor coordination issue, and we talked about that a little bit, and I meant to mention that earlier when we were talking about motor skill problems. We sort of left it at the neuromuscular or neurological involvement level where Again, a kid has lower muscle tone or even higher muscle tone, and so we can't use his little hands to play with toys like we would or like we see with other typically developing toddlers who don't have those issues or like we would expect to see. But, you know, there's another kind of motor issue, too. It's motor planning, motor sequencing. So it's not that there's anything, quote, unquote, wrong with his muscles. It's just that he can't get it all together, as far as execution, so he he somewhere it short circuits between that message in his little brain center to send that little message to his hand that says, can't push the barn door to get it to open, you have to pull it. And so that's like a good example of a motor planning problem. He does not understand how to get his little body to move in the way that he wants to move. And so, or there, like sometimes there are cognitive pieces to that too. And, and a lot of times for a lot of kids, it's just not one clear-cut answer. It's lots of different things. But when you have motor planning problems, it's also going to be really difficult to sign because, again, it's so hard for you to make your body copy what you see another person's body do. And speech really is a motor movement, so that's why the kids aren't ta- those kids aren't talking yet either because they have a hard time making their little mouths move and do the same things that they have seen your adult mouth do. And so that's another way to explain that to parents if you're a therapist. Now, for some parents, that will be a really simplified explanation, and you don't ever want a parent to feel like you are talking down to them, and we just want to avoid that at all costs. But at the same time, I've had highly, highly, highly educated parents that I've tried to use lots of bigger words and stuck with a lot of the speech pathology terminology, and they sort of get it. But when I break it down like that and use words like short circuit, or can't get his little hands to do what his little brain we hope, hopefully is telling him to do, or he's not watching you closely. When we just use plain old everyday Very easy to understand language. It doesn't matter what a parent's education level is. They appreciate it (laughs) because it makes sense to them. It finally kind of all comes together. And, again, sometimes as therapists we can try so hard to sound so academic and so professional and so intellectual that we just talk all over ourselves. And parents don't get what we're saying. And they may nod their heads like they do because they don't want to say you're talking you're using words and you're talking above my head here, you know, that's just as disturbing as when we do it is when someone's on the the receiving end of that and they're too embarrassed to say, I have no idea what you mean. And so it is a good idea to always try to opt to, to use some more everyday language that everybody will understand and so that you're all on the same page. Even if you feel like you're simplifying it a little bit too much, just tell parents that and just say, boy, this is oversimplified, but I just want to make sure we're on the same page here. And if you want to talk about that or do some additional research where you get more of an academic explanation or you want more... Uh, complexity here so that you truly, truly understand it. You know, I can talk about that with you or I can send you to some other sources, but for right now we're just going to keep this as basic as possible so that we are all understanding each other and we're making sure that we know that we're all talking about the same thing. All right, so that's what we were talking about with motor planning or how a child uses his little body to and plans how he will copy your signs, and lots of kids can't do that. And we said it's particularly hard for kids with autism, either because of the motor planning piece, and many, many children who are on the spectrum have motor planning difficulties, and the official speech diagnosis for that is apraxia, and that would be apraxia in addition to autism. And then some kids have apraxia that, that are not on the autism spectrum. Apraxia is kind of their only issue as far as speech goes. But when kids have these motor planning problems that affect how they talk, it also could affect how they sign. Now, again, I've taught a ton of kids with apraxia to sign, and that was actually a wonderful strategy for them because it gave them a way to communicate, and it really, really provided a way to strengthen those motor planning skills. And they're not able to do it with their little mouths yet, but we get their hands going with signs and things seem to fall into place a little bit better because of practice and because, again, of honing that system. So that was the second level there, getting a child, teaching him how to imitate body movements and gestures and certainly signs are kind of the granddaddy or the the, the, the end game as far as using gestures, using that complex system of hand movements to indicate a message to someone. And so that was the third, or I'm sorry, that was the second level of imitation there. And so when we're working with kids who aren't talking, it certainly is a strategy worth exploring. But again, it doesn't work for every child. And here's the good news, not every child needs to sign in order to learn how to talk. So if you're working with a late talker and they're doing a ton of gestures, you may think about signing as just a little in-between step or something that a kid could do as a compensatory strategy to get him over the hump and to decrease some of that frustration that that child undoubtedly feels because no one understands what he's trying to tell them. He, he's, he's not able to use words yet. And especially when kids have some nice receptive language strengths and when they are really coordinated motorically, I think signs are a great strategy to get that going. And it does, like I said before, really provide practice for that motor system to get that going. So that was the second level of imitation. Uh, But if you do have a kid who's using a lot of gestures, you may move on just to this next level and and think, oh, we may not even need signs. And that is fantastic when that happens. Again, not every kid needs that. The next level that we look at, again, is a little bit controversial because we want to see how a child is able to imitate nonverbal movements with his mouth. And let me just say, there are tons of kids who don't need this step in the process either. And we have good research that tells us that it's not necessary for a child to be able to imitate these oral motor actions to talk. You know, moving your tongue from side to side or lateralizing, as a speech-language pathologist would say, or as a parent, that's just to think about sticking out your tongue and moving it from side to side, see if a kid can do that. See if he's able to imitate at that level or something like um, puckering your lips to give a kiss. If your child can pucker after he's seen you pucker, and again, we're looking at imitation, he already does this well, so you don't need to stay at this level too long. If he's able to maybe pop his lips... And, again, that would be something more like the next level where there's actually a sound involved. But anything where he's doing lick his lips in imitation of you, again, anything that he's going to do with his lips, his cheek, his cheeks, or his tongue, think about that, any kind of little mouth movement, then you'll know, oh, boy, you know, those those skills are doing fine. If a child smiles at you when you smile at him, a child closes his lips tightly, sticks out his tongue, anything like that, would indicate, oh, he's able to do that. Now, oral motor imitation is really part of an initial exam or an initial evaluation that most speech-language pathologists try to do with kids. The problem with the kids kids that are really, really young in this birth-to-three age range is that sometimes we can't get them to do these things because they don't understand why we're doing it. But as a parent, you may be able to get a child to do that much more easily than the speech pathologist would because you are familiar with your child and you are connected with your child. So try some of those things and see if you can get it going. Now, I don't use these things routinely as a treatment approach unless there are significant problems with oral motor weakness or um, discoordination that I think, boy, we've got to get some things going here before he's able to move on, and again, this is just from an imitative standpoint, like a child is not watching my mouth closely enough, or if we strengthen these these things, you know maybe that's going to bump us into the next level, and he's going to be able to do it. but again, remember, not every kid's going to need this, and there's not a ton of research to really, really support it, except with a small subset of kids who have lots and lots of muscular differences, so a lot of low muscle tone, a lot of high muscle tone, and they have to really, really, they're struggling to use all the parts of their little bodies, you know, difficulty learning how to walk, difficulty learning how to use their little hands to do functional things like hold their cup or hold hold their bottle or eat with utensils in addition to playing with toys. So, again, this may be necessary for some of those kids, but for most children with, even those with language delays, this step here might not be where you spend a lot of time teaching a child how to do it, you're just going to do some observation and see how firmly established these skills are or if these skills aren't there. Then you'll know, aha, this is probably something motor-based, either, again, a muscle tone issue, a muscular difference, or... There's that execution piece, it's motor planning. That, that's the part that's off. All right, so that's the third step that we would look at in this imitation hierarchy. How can a child imitate nonverbal actions with his mouth? And if you have a kid who can do a few old things like that with you right off the bat, Woohoo! celebrate, and then move on. (laughs) You do not need to spend any more time at that level. The next level of imitation that you would look at would be helping a a toddler learn how to imitate early vocalizations in play. So here what we're doing is we're taking – well, first, let me say this. We started back in level one with imitation, with looking at how a kid imitates with actions with objects, and then level two with those body movements with uh, imitating gestures and imitating actions with his hands and arms. And, again, those become really purposeful and communicative, but those are all gross motor things and things, again, with his whole body or with his hands and arms. Now, and then in Level 3 where we looked at nonverbal Actions with his mouth, you know we moved to the mouth and but it was nonverbal there was no sound, and so now we're going to make that a little bit harder for a child, and now we're still doing mouth movements, but we're going to do really, really easy vocalizations or easy sounds, so this would be that a child is imitating things like coughing, so a fake cough like. <laughs> you'll think back. That's what a lot of babies start doing, especially as they get to be about nine months, ten months. Sometimes it starts a lot earlier than that. But things like fake sneezing, they'll imitate a whine after you, they'll imitate a grunt. Some of the early uh, sounds that toddlers will do in this category, these are like sound effect things so, like, you know, little brake noises like if you're, they're playing with a car and they'll imitate that. Panting like a dog, squealing or screaming in the context of a game or something that you're doing with them. Lots of babies like those back and forth uh, games that we do with sounds with them, where and babbling um, would probably fall in the next category. But anytime that you're making a sound and you're trying to, again, go back and forth and the child imitates you. And then you, you make the same sound again, and then he does it again. And that's tons of fun. Now, a lot of times, late talkers just aren't interested in this. Their parents have already tried it. It's something that they did. But it's always worth your time to try to get some of these things going. But for lots of kids, we just really stick to doing this in the context of play. So we're playing with a baby doll, or we're playing with some farm animals, or we're playing with some of their little characters that they have or whatever, and we'll just try some of these things. We'll pretend to cry which always cracks toddlers up. They usually think that's so funny when they realize that you're not really hurt or you're not really upset. (laughs) They like the fake crying piece So anything like that where you're making noise, you're getting them to imitate noises after you. And can't you see in the hierarchy of learning how to talk how that would be a really sequential step? In the last level, we were looking at nonverbal movements with your mouth, and now we've made it a little bit harder. So we're doing those early vocalizations. We're not to words yet, so we're not doing actual speech sounds, but we're making our way there. So that's, that's a level where we begin with a lot of late talkers in therapy is just getting them to imitate those kinds of sounds and getting them noisy and they realize, hey, I can control what I do with my mouth. I can make this noise too. I can copy you. I can imitate you. And so that's that's certainly a step there. The next step is really, really fun, and it's helping a child learn how to imitate play sounds called exclamatory words. Now, here's where it starts to sound like a child is really talking because we are using speech sounds or consonant and vowel sounds. If you're a parent, if you'll think about the alphabet, think about the letter representation of all these sounds. So this would be words like yay and "Uh uh-oh or "Mm -mm mm-mm-mm or something like ouch or any kind of little sound effect thing, animal noises, fall in this category, so moo like a cow and woof 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 like a dog or quack, quack 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 like a duck, those things. And vehicle noises that you can spell that are real words like beep beep and room and you know, woo woo for a choo choo. Those little sounds there. So helping a child learn how to imitate exclamatory words. Now here's the, again, here's what I want to emphasize. For speech language pathologists Many times, this is where you need to begin with late-talking toddlers, and here's how you know. They're already trying to do a couple of these things on their own, so let's say that you start an evaluation with a child, and you're asking mom how many words he has, and she says none. You need to immediately say, well, how many environmental noises will he imitate or little play sounds like animal noises or car and truck noises, because a lot of times kids will do this kind of thing, but parents don't think to report those as words. And as I say all the time, if I can spell it, it's a word, and I am counting it. Now, it's hard for me to do something like, errr, like we talked about before, that little sound effect word, or sound effect sound, it's not a word, but something like boom or crash or, you know, uh, vroom, vroom, vroom. I can make a case for that being a word, can't you? And so that's where a lot of us need to start with kids. And again, we know that during the assessment process because those are the kinds of vocalizations that parents say, oh, yes, he can already do a couple of those. And and by getting that kind of information, we know that's where he can become successful. That that That's where I need to start. I can get two or three new sounds today during this assessment, and then that's going to give his parents so much hope. And so much confidence in me as a professional because I have zeroed in on where we need to be working with this child and where he is telling me, hey, Laura, <laughs> start here. And that's what you need to think about when you're doing the your assessments and a parent says, you know, no, he can't do any words, but you say how many, sound, how many sounds can he make, like how many animal sounds, how many car and truck noises, how many environmental sounds. And mom might say, well, he tries to sound like a doorbell. Now that you mention that, he does do something like ee-ah when he hears the doorbell ring. You should think, as his speech-language pathologist or developmental interventionist or whatever you are, you should think, aha, I know what to do. I'm going to start with play sounds with this child or exclamatory words. So think about that. And, again, this is the place where you start with a lot of kids. And sometimes we do sort of get stuck in a treatment rut where we think we have to start everybody with signs or everybody needs to start with pictures. or And we haven't even talked about that today as far as an expressive language strategy. That is a really fantastic uh, way to get expressive communication going in a child when we think that He's just not going to be developmentally ready for words for a long time. I'm going to just not go down that that bunny trail today. We're not going to go off on that tangent and talk about pictures. But that is another fantastic strategy to jumpstart expressive language, because, and it does reduce frustration because children then have a way to communicate, and we're not waiting on those words. We're giving them that... In between step. and frankly, for some children, they'll be at pictures or uh, speech-generating device that's uh, based on that visual system. They're going to be there for a long time, or maybe forever, if they have certainly a diagnosis which really, really significantly um, limits their ability to be able to learn to talk. So, for some kids, that we need to start those systems right away as toddlers. Now, you don't forego talking. You don't forego working on verbal things, too. But when you know there's a pretty big chance or or, or even, you know, a possibility that a kid may not talk because of his diagnosis, as a professional we've got to get some other system going. We can't just keep waiting and waiting and waiting when uh, talking may be unrealistic. Now, as a parent, Don't let that scare you. (laughs) I hope you're not listening and you want to just turn off your computer right now or your phone or however you're listening because that statement scares you to death. We never want to give up on speech, and we never want to give up the possibility or the hope that a child will talk. And here's the truth. Some kids don't talk until they're 7 or 8 or 9 when they have a medical diagnosis. And My point is you need to do something now and using Pictures or signs or some other kind of app or device to get communication going is always a good idea. It does not prevent a child from learning how to talk and you can still work on all these things simultaneously so you're giving a kid a system and you're giving him another avenue of communicating while you are still working pretty hard on speech so don't don't please don't misunderstand what I'm saying and please too don't take that as. A definitive, uh, you know, my kid may never talk. I haven't seen your child. I don't know. And let me just say too, miracles happen every single day, and we don't hang our hats on that. With that, we're not going to teach a child other things to do. But don't give up on speech either. And that's 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 all I want to say about that. Let's let's keep going here. All right. So that was level five. where We were looking at exclamatory words, where. A child is using those words like "wee" and uh, whoa" and "woohoo and "hurray and those are such fun words to use and so fun in the context of play and lots of times I feel like when I start here with toddlers they don 't even know they 're talking they don 't even they don 't even put it together yet they just think it 's an extension of having a good time with while we 're playing and to them imitating this kind of word, and they may have been so quiet and just so not naturally imitative before but you get a lot of these things going as you are working with them in therapy and and it's happening for them before they even realize it. And so it's just again a natural extension of the play routine. And so they think about yelling yay and clapping just like they think about using the hammer to hit the ball in a ball toy. It's just part of the play routine and it's real natural and it's so exciting when it happens like that because I always feel like, you know, again, boy, I have met them where they are. I've met them at a level where they can be successful. And so great, great starting point for lots of kids who come to us in early intervention who are late talkers. And let me just say, for most of your kids, instead of starting at the very beginning like we did today, you know, we're all the way up to level five, but instead of starting at level one, do they imitate actions with objects, and you're really wanting to see that. And and I already mentioned this. If they're playing with toys and if they're imitating any kind of actions that you do with toys, you know, check that off and move on. If mom says they wave bye-bye and they point and they clap with you when you've clapped uh, to cheer them on during the evaluation and use saw them shake their head no when you asked them a question or when mom did. You know, check that level off. You don't need to go back and spend any therapy time on that. They've already mastered that. So for lots of kids, you're going to get to this. This this is where you start. This is where you hit the ground running with treatment. And so, again, it might not be with real words, which is uh, a level that's too hard. It's a couple of levels above this. But it might not be with signs or pictures, which is a couple of levels below this. So think about finding that just right starting place. And, again, if you'll think about let me meet him where he is, what can he already do, you'll be much further down the road, you know, much, much, much further. And so when mom says, oh, he he's not really talking, but, hey, you know, he can do a couple of animal sounds, and he does try to make a choo-choo sound. He's playing with those trains. You know, this is where I should begin with this child. All right, so that was level five. The next level of imitation that we look at, is teaching a child to imitate automatic speech during verbal routines. Now, this would be saying words that are highly dependent on context. So when a mom says to you, when you start hearing things like, well, he doesn't say very many words, but he does try to count, or sometimes he actually tries to say go, when I say, ready, set, and go, or when I, when I ask for a little vocabulary list when I'm first evaluating and I hear words that seem like they're from songs or that seem like they're from the alphabet or they seem like they could be related to your routine, I just start saying to mom, when does he say three? And she says, oh, it's when I count, one, two, three. Or I'll say, When does he say up? And she'll say, well, I play this little game with him. Every morning when I go into his crib, I say, do you want up, up, up? And sometimes he tries to say it. You know, again, ding, 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 ding. (laughs) You found it. You found your starting point. He's at the automatic speech level. And so what do you do? You don't start at a level that's Below it or a level that's beyond it, you start right here. And you think, well, I'm going to teach this child lots and lots of different verbal routines because this is where he can be successful. So things like ready, set, go, things like counting one, two, three, things like saying words to finish songs. So if mom is a singer and has sung him lots and lots of songs, and he loves music, you start teaching mom how to pause so that he can close the last line of the phrase there. So mom, let's pretend like she says, every night we look out the window and I sing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, and she just loves it. And so you say to mom, tonight when you sing that song, I want you to sing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little, and then wait. And see if she will fill in that word. And when you have kids that start doing that, guys, they are right on the verge of talking. But don't forge ahead. (laughs) Parents, don't forge ahead. Don't think, great, I'm jumping to the next level. They can already do it. Unless they have lots of examples in this category, you would stay where they are. And so if they're only doing two or three of these little things, again, don't rush ahead because he, he may not be successful there, Stay at this level. And so teach them lots of different little songs and little routines. And, again, your purpose here is after they know the routine, start pausing to see if they will fill in the word. One of my favorite things to do here is play the game Ring Around the Rosies because kids love it. And from a sensory standpoint, it helps them calm down because you are – Holding hands so you're giving them some input to their hands and you are going around your little circle and you're going to ring around the rosies, pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes. We all fall. And then you might do that little gasp there, that expectant waiting, that pausing. And you're looking at them right in their little faces. And so many times if you've played the game enough, a kid will just pop out down before they even know they're talking. So automatic speech can be just a fantastic initial strategy to get a kid going. And let's say you're a parent right now listening, and you have tried forever to get your child to imitate things, and you're right in his face saying, you know, tell me, Mama, say juice, say please. You know, you have just tried and tried and tried and tried. Back up to this level Start to sing some little songs and introduce some little routines. And once you've done it dozens and dozens of times, pause to see if your child will fill in that last word. If you're a therapist and you are really stuck with a kid that you, again, you might have tried some pictures that they ha- haven't done a lot, but you think he's just not that interested. He, you know, he he understands. He's using some gestures, and you know, I just think he's further along than some of those earlier levels, but he's still not really, really. Imitating consistently your single words, stop trying some of those activities and back up to this automatic speech level and see what you can get going. Now, social games provide such a good opportunity for children to learn these little routines because you're playing them over and over and over, and they love them. It strengthens social connections, and even if a kid doesn't need to work on that, boy, you know, I've had a lot of kids that that have... You know, they're they're okay socially. They make eye contact. They interact with their parents, but they weren't so crazy about me at the beginning or any new people. But you work on these social games and you make playing that and enjoying a child a regular part of your therapy, and they immediately turn into these super connected kids, and you just have such a great relationship with them because you've taken the time to get that social piece going, and then guess what? They start filling in those little words and these songs. And this is what I've already said. You've met them where they are developmentally, and and they are successful there. And so if you have just been trying and trying and trying and can't really get anything else going, do back up and play a lot of these social games. Now, if you need a good... Uh, source for this, Teach Me to Play With You. is the first therapy manual I wrote back in 2010, and it is such a great resource because it takes little games like Patty Cake and like the songs that we've talked about with Ring Around the Rosies and Twinkle, Twinkle Little Star and things like Wheels on the Bus or other games, other jumping games or, you know, games like Rocket Ship, all those fun little things. And if you don't know a lot of those, as a therapist, you should have 10 to 15 social games ready to go at any minute that you Pull out. And again, there's no materials. I don't know why I'm saying pull out. But, but strategies and games that you are just ready to play at the drop of a hat, and you know your goals. You know, in Peekaboo, well, the first thing I'm going to try to get her to do is take the blanket off her head. And the next thing I try to get her to do in Peekaboo, you know, you don't start at the beginning, you start at the end of the game and kind of backward chain it all the way through. The next thing I want to say with Peekaboo after she's learned how to take the blanket off is I want to see that she's anticipating that the blanket will come off. And peekaboo and she's moving around the next thing I want to see is that she'll cover her own head that she recognizes the game well enough and so again you, you kind of take it all the way back like that so that book will help you and will really help define your goals if you're a therapist and you've struggled to you know how do I document social games how do I help a kid make progress in social games teach me to play with you will do that and it will, it will really help you at this automatic speech level because you'll get a lot of examples. It won't be just you playing your same little two or three games over and over and over. And if you're a parent, oh, gosh, that book is so user-friendly. It's really written for parents. And so therapists use it a lot for homework. They'll copy the pages and then give it to the parents. Or take a picture, you know, if you have the manual with you in a session, take a picture of that page with that game and then... uh, Text it or email it to parents, and they like that a lot too because they, they've got it right there. So super, super resource for automatic speech because lots and lots of directions for those little games. All right, now we're finally at the point where we can talk about a child being able to imitate some single words in the context of what our game is. And so can you see how you might have rushed ahead and worked on single words and getting a child to imitate words when he's just not developmentally ready yet? And so many times we do that. We just rush right ahead. And listen, it is great when it happens. It is fantastic. Like I said at the beginning of the show, when we evaluate a child and in the very first session or two, they start to talk. (laughs) They start to imitate the words that we've modeled for them. And it is so good when it happens, but more often than not, as therapists, we have to get them to this point. We have to do all the things that we talked about at the beginning. We have to make sure that those prerequisites are in place, their social skills, their cognition, and their receptive language skills. And then we work through these levels of imitation. More often than not, those are the kids that we're we're getting. But we get them to this point where they're talking in the context of automatic speech. They're saying, go. When you say, ready, that they're saying that they're they're trying to sing some songs with you their parents have some cute little games that they play at home where they say they're starting to say some words that are just again the parents do not hear the word unless they're doing the routine that the word is from when you get a kid there then then you really know beyond a shadow of a doubt now he's ready now i can bump him up to this single word level. Now there are some things that we can do here at the single word level that are going to be able to help kids imitate too. And the first thing really is modeling. It's that we are saying a word and then a kid imitates that word after us. And again that's what we've been talking about this whole show with these levels of imitation. The next thing we want to do when a child is imitating words pretty well a lot of times therapists will email me and say how can I Move a child towards spontaneous use of words. He's a great imitator now, but, boy, I think I might have overdone it because he just sounds like a little parrot all day long. And let me just interject a word about uh, echolalia. Sometimes therapists will get really concerned about echolalia when kids are just imitating lots at the single word level. Don't get too concerned about it unless a child, because it's it's what you want to see. You want children to imitate all day, every day. It's when kids imitate lots of chunks of language, so they're taking, like, whole entire books that they've memorized, but they have no recognition of those words, and they have no, you don't see a lot of, comprehension in other contexts they're not following a lot of verbal directions for you and let me say too typically developing kids also have some zany brainy memory skills and can learn entire books and can sing entire songs and can quote some movies but the kicker is they know what those words mean they use them in context like they walk up to their parents and say something like woody and then they'll some um, a part of the movie, or they'll have their little Woody doll, and they'll you'll look at them, or their Buzz toy, and they'll say, to infinity and beyond, and they don't understand those words, but they understand Buzz Lightyear, and when you say, where's your Buzz? Go find Buzz. They do it, and so that's the difference there. You know, don't always panic about <laughs> hearing a child lift a little phrase from one of his favorite shows or favorite books. That's completely normal, but when we have children who – don't have lots of evidence that they understand those words, that's when it crosses over to echolalia, meaning that they're just repeating to repeat, and again, the words aren't meaningful yet. So that's how you know. That's that's the differentiation there. But back to modeling. Modeling is what we do, again, when we want a child to repeat and imitate the word and then to bump him up on the way to getting him to use the words himself. A lot of times that in-between step is choices. So you start to give him a lot of choices. And and when you're first starting this technique, it is just him usually imitating the last word that you say. So you might be offering a choice for a snack, and you say, do you want cookies or an apple? And he says apple. But you know that he really wants the cookies. You give him the apple anyway, because that's the word that he said, and he's gotten so hooked on imitating the last word that he's heard. And, again, this is kids who have great receptive language and great cognitive skills will realize right away, I did not get the cookie. I got the apple. Oh, wait a minute. I said apple. <laughs> you can almost see their little wheels turn as this is happening. And so using choices is a really effective way to help children really, really learn and, and again, move towards spontaneous language because you are helping them. Again, you're giving them the verbal model that they still need, but you bumped it up just a little bit. And if you put the choice first so that if you know, hey, I'm going to ask him if he wants, he, he obviously wants to play with his choo-choo trains right now, but I'm going to say, do you want choo-choos or the book? And he says, book he will really, really learn pretty quickly, oh, I said the wrong word. And you can almost see kids start to just change it right away. Or they get mad, and it might take be to sort of learn it. But they get there. And so using choices is a great way to do it. Once kids can do that, then you start to withhold words that they have or objects that they say the word for. You start to withhold them, and you wait them out a little bit. And, and see, but here's the kicker, guys. Unless you've heard a child really, really imitate words frequently, don't go to withholding because you don't even really know that they can say the word consistently enough yet. So withholding is sparingly until a child is a great imitator and until he's making lots and lots of choices. And then once, kids, you're withholding it, meaning that you're holding, say, the goldfish and you're saying, you know, what do you want? What do you want? Oh, I'm having some fish in my hands here. What do you want? And that's withholding where you're really, really giving them an opportunity to ask for it. And then once they can do that, you, where you're, they're not getting the direct model for them to imitate just right there. You might have said it kind of in the context of the sentence or they see the visual cue. Then and only then are they able to move on to things like sabotage and where you're hiding things or where you're putting things out of their reach and you're not giving them the verbal model at all. You're just waiting and waiting and waiting. but You're setting up the situation. But you're you're not giving them that verbal model for them to imitate. That's how you how you get a kid to spontaneous words. It's through that process modeling choices, withholding, and then sabotage. All right, we didn't get a chance to talk about phrases today because we're at the end of our hour. But phrases are that next level. Once kids learn thirty five to fifty words and they're saying those spontaneously, then you move them to start to imitate some phrases. But that's that's kind of our Overall view of effective expressive language strategies for toddlers. And again, remember these are kids without other developmental red flags. If there are other things that you need to be working on, don't skip ahead to these things. Work on those other pieces first. Work on social interaction. Work on building their cognitive skills. Work on their receptive language skills. And you can start these. Early levels of imitation with imitating actions with objects because you're technically working on play, which is paired with receptive language. You could work on gestures, but just know that until I get these other skills, these other areas uh, stronger and more stable, I'm not going to have as much success with expressive language because the kid is just not there yet. Okay, if you need some resources to help you get these uh, Get these expressive strategies going. I mentioned several things today already, but let me just talk to you about that again. Teach Me to Talk was my first DVD. Can't believe how well it's done. It's been 10 years, but what, what a ride. And people uh, still email me every day to tell me how that DVD is helping them. So if you're a parent and you want to see some of these strategies in action, get Teach Me to Talk. For therapists, Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual, is a fantastic resource and will walk you through All of these expressive language strategies. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that these levels or these steps, step one, step two, step three that we talked about, that's from Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers. That's a therapy manual, or you can get it as a course with ASHA credit or a certificate of completion if you're another kind of therapist or if you track your own CEU units. So those are some super, super resources to get expressive language strategies going with children that you work with, or if you're a parent and need some help, hey, listen, these resources will really, really help you. Don't feel like they're going to be above your head, and it is going to be worth the time and the money that you invest with for your own child, working with your own child at home. Don't depend on your therapist because nobody will ever, ever, ever know your child like you. Now, that's not to say that your child doesn't need speech therapy. I am a speech pathologist and have been for 25 years and am not going to dare tell you not to do therapy. Do not misunderstand me. I'm just saying your kid is going to make much better progress if you decide I can do this, I can help my child, and more often than not, you know you're going to have to get yourself some resources and invest, again, your time and your money Um, to make that happen for your own child. All right, so that's all for today's show. Next time we're going to probably spend a little bit more time talking about expressive language, what to do if a child isn't ready, those other things that we talked about today, signs, pictures. Let's try to have a little show next week where we review those things. So if a child's not quite ready... To move on yet. This last piece would be speech intelligibility. So next week we'll back up a little bit and we'll talk about um, some early strategies and then we'll also go on the other end of expressive language where we talk a little bit more about phrases and a little bit more about making word spontaneous because that was so quick at the end. I know there are probably therapists and parents who were saying, I wish you'd spent more time on that. That's where my child is. That's where most of the kids on my case load are. So we'll do that. We'll kind of sandwich today's show with uh, information from next week's show, what ki- comes before these levels of imitation and what comes after it with phrases. So that's our plan for next week. So I hope you'll join me. And in the meantime, have a fantastic week. And as always, thanks for tuning in. I'm Laura and this was Teach Me Talk. Have a great week.